Good morning. It's good to see everybody, and it's good to be back. I'm Pastor David Frierson. Uh, at least that's what your bulletin says. Gone for a week, and you forgot who I was. But I uh, appreciate everybody's prayers. Uh, while we were out, everything went well, so you can follow along in worship. And we have the confession of the faith and our prayers that we do together. So if you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, but we'd like you to follow along. We also have a visitor card or a guest card that if you'll fill that out, we have a record of your visit. Uh, we'd love to reach out, and if there's a way we can minister to you, we'd be glad to do that as well. But before I open us in prayer and begin, there are some announcements that you'll see uh, on the back uh, of the last page. I like to do those before I pray. Um, one thing is the women's uh, Christmas tea and cookie is this coming Saturday. So women, if you're planning on being a part of that, um, please try to sign up or to get a head count if you're not sure how that works or you can't get signed up, either call the office or Cindy Freeze. Uh, but it'd be nice to get a head count as they're decorating tables and keeping everything set up for that. Um, but you'll also see uh, the 29th is the Wednesday Bible study uh, for women, just to kick off. It's a time to meet. The men will be meeting again. It's our last week to meet for the men, and then we'll pick back up in February, as we do every year. Uh, and then the women are going to be meeting alongside. So women, if you are interested in an in-person Bible study on Wednesday night, uh, we would invite you to be a part. Appreciate you have questions, let us know. Uh, but we're not going to be together. Uh, women, we appreciate you can cook for us. You can prepare the meals for us and get all that stuff ready. But we don't want you to study with us. Um, <laughs> No, the truth is we'll be on separate places, but it's a wonderful time where men and women, if you're together in your homes, can come at the same time. Women, you'll be meeting separately. The men will be downstairs and the fellow and plug in. But, uh, but if you don't have a Bible study, we encourage you, women, to please come and plug in. Obviously, you see the men's breakfast that's going to be meeting. And then our Christmas Eve service, we put it in there for you. It will be on Sunday night, which is uh, on the weekend, which is nice. Some of you may be traveling, we know, to, to be with family. But if you are here, we want to invite you to stay and come be a part of our service. We'll have the, the singing of songs and the reading of scriptures and the sharing together. And so we will celebrate not only Sunday morning, but Sunday night. We will not have all the kids and youth programs. We'll be right here together fellowshipping for our Christmas Eve service. We will light the Christ candle that night. Uh, starting next week, we do Advent here. So we'll set up our candles, and we will celebrate, and we will have some families reading for us each week as we light the candles. I'll continue preaching through Mark, but we will observe the candles and share and have some readings as we fellowship together during the Advent season. So please uh, let us know uh, if you're willing to read. I may call on some families. I may even let the elders, but every year, last year we had our high school seniors come up and read to fellowship. So we try every year to let different people come and fellowship with Advent. But before I open in prayer, let me just read uh, from Ian Bounds. The men who have done the most for God in this world have been early on their knees. He who fritters away the early morning, its opportunity and freshness in other pursuits than seeking God will make poor headway seeking him the rest of the day. If God is not first in our thoughts and efforts in the morning, he will be in last place the remainder of the day. And what a blessing that we're able to put him first today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this week, the opportunity to be here to worship. Lord, I thank you that we've been called by you, that we have a place. Lord, we pray for the many churches, your settings, that 
uh, through the pandemic and through the hardships uh, had to close. And Lord, we pray for the many families that needed to find other places. Lord, we rejoice over the churches that were able to take them, that were able to go forward to continue worshiping and gathering together. Lord, we know that worship is the place we come to use our gifts. It's the place where you've put us in the body, where we can work together to glorify you. And Lord, it's our prayer this morning that you would do just that. You would take our songs, our prayers, our giving, even our learning together, and use it to glorify you for the rest of the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me as I call us to worship this morning, it's from the Book of Common Worship. Let me read that as we call ourselves to worship and begin to sing together. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. As we come to worship, join us there in the bulletin as we sing Crown Him.
look in your bulletin this morning for our confession of faith. We're using the larger catechism. Question 152 and 153. I'll ask the question, what does every sin deserve from God? Since even the least sin goes against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and the life to come and cannot be expiated except by the blood of Christ. What does God require from us to escape his wrath and curse which we deserve for our sin? To escape God's wrath and curse, which we deserve for our sin, God requires from us repentance and relationship to God and faith in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, along with diligent involvement in all the external ways Christ uses to bring us the benefits of his mediation. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning in this hour thanking you for the work of Christ, that belief and trust in him is indeed what turns away your wrath, the work of Christ, and that we receive that by faith in what you have done for us in Christ. And so we rejoice, Father, on this wonderful Sabbath day, this Sunday morning, coming together as your sheep, your people, giving you praise and thanksgiving from our hearts for all that you've done for us in Christ, that all good and perfect gifts are from you. And so we thank you, Father, this morning. We thank you for the work of Christ, that it has turned away the wrath, the justice that our sins deserve. Hallelujah. What a work we praise you for this morning, Father, for what Jesus has done. And we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. By his Spirit, Father, we are illuminating the word to us and understanding it. We thank you for his work in the church today, calling sinners to believe and trust in Christ, convicting us of sin and need of righteousness and your holiness. And as we read your word, Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts and minds and applies that word to us. For you are the triune God, and we give you praise, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And so we praise you and thank you this morning that we can begin this day early with you and giving you praise and thanksgiving. Father, we pray as well for our nation. We pray for revival in this land, we pray for your blessing on the president, the vice president, the Congress, governors and legislatures, city and county, that we might live quietly and peaceably in this land, be free to share the good news of the gospel of Christ with this nation. We pray, Father, for Bible-believing churches, for the PCA in particular, all across our land, to be faithful to the word of God, to be faithful to our creeds, the confessions of your church that are based on the Bible, your holy word, and that you will raise up men who will preach the gospel faithfully, regardless of the cost, the good news of the gospel of Christ. We thank you for MTW and for our missionaries that we support and for their work around the world. 
And we thank you for the ones that we support and help. And we ask your blessing on their work. Protect them from the evil one. Provide for their needs, both spiritual and physical. The needs of our missionaries around the world. And we pray as well, Father, this morning for the sick. We lift them up before you this morning. For those who are in beds of sickness and illness, we pray for your Holy Spirit to comfort them. That your word would be their precious promise of strength each day. That you are the God of all comfort. And so we pray that they will know your comforting work and your promises in your holy word this day. And we pray for them, Father. We thank you for our brother Jerry Strait as he brings the message this morning, Father. And we ask your blessing that you will give him the words to say and the message from your word as we hear your word proclaimed. We thank you that this church is a Bible-centered church, a church that exalts your word, for it is your holy word to us as your shepherd, your people. And we thank you, Father, for your word this morning. And we give you praise for all this hour. We thank you for our family and friends and many blessings that you have given us in this world. But most of all, we thank you for the gift of eternal life that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And we continue to pray, Father, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This time we'll take our offering and the Bible reminds us that on the first day of the week, God's people come together to give their offerings. So ushers will come forward and uh, take the baskets.
remain standing as we confess our need of Christ, our forgiveness of our sins, and confess our sins before the Lord. This particular confession, as you see the attribution there listed in your bulletin, is from John Calvin, uh, one that he wrote uh, to use in worship. So let us join our hearts in confession of sin. Grant, Almighty God, that as we are prone to every kind of wickedness and are easily led away to imitate it, when there is any excuse for going astray and any opportunity is offered, O grant that being strengthened by the help of thy Spirit, we may continue in purity of faith, and that what we have learned concerning thee, that thou art a spirit, may so profit us that we may worship thee in spirit and with a sincere heart and never turn aside after the corruptions of the world, nor think we can deceive thee. But may we so devote our souls and bodies to thee that our life may in every part of it testify that we are a pure and holy sacrifice to thee. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And hear the marvelous assurance that we have from the scriptures from Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be revered. You may be seated. Oh, I'm sorry. The next song. <laughs>
Amen. You may be seated, and thanks again to the choir for helping out and uh, leading us this morning. And we invite you to uh, be a part as well. If you want to be a part of the choir, please let us know. Come and join with us as we lead throughout the Christmas season. This morning, if you're visiting with us, we're in Mark chapter 7. And I hope you brought your Bibles along to follow so that uh, you'll be able to see. This is one of the texts in Mark that is probably more difficult than most if you were to do your study. If you're one who likes to get into the text and its criticisms and its variations, this is one of the chapters. I won't be able to give you all the details. I'll just run it down for you and let you know that in this chapter alone, Mark several times uses words that he only uses in this chapter and nowhere else. So it gets kind of sticky on some of the terminology. He also confronts us on some of the most important issues in our life when we begin to talk about traditions and comparing them to the truths. This morning, Mark brings us to a point, and I want to bring it to you, and I ask for your grace up front. Uh, I'm going to be point blank on some of the things this morning in Scripture. I'm going to just bring them right out and apply them to your life. And when that happens, you might be as frustrated with me as some of the Pharisees were with Jesus. Because sometimes when things are pointed at us and the things that are in our life are confronted, it's easy to get offended. Now, I'm not here to blame anybody uh, what they've done. Uh, it's been a rough week for me, as you can tell. Uh, the hardest part of the whole thing was having to sit still for a few days. Uh, I like to go. Mary said to me earlier this morning, did Stacy do that to you? I thought to myself, finally, someone believes me. <laughs> finally. She is this. No. Um, she did not do this to me. She did several times say, I wish they'd go a lot deeper. I wish they'd go a lot deeper. No. But we all have opportunities in our lives when we're confronted with things. And here, Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees, and then uses a bunch of terms. I won't give you all of them. I'll try to get through a lot of it. I may pick up next week and actually speak about what it means to have a defiled heart itself. Because if you understand what Jesus is talking about this morning, you understand that the true relationship with Christ is all determined on the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, not on the traditions that have come about in all of our lives. Before I even start this morning, I could ask you, how many of you have traditions that you sometimes have to question, do they even go along with Scripture? Now, I'm not saying you can't have traditions that are just normal traditions, but sometimes those traditions, we teach them as though they're biblical, as though there are moral principles grounded in God's Word. Rather than just saying, these are the things our family likes to do, we connect them to the truth. So here in the first parts, let me read to you, and then I'll give you a background. It's a lengthy section. Bear with me as I read here the first 20-some verses of chapter 7. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Verse 1, chapter 7, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came from Jerusalem and saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. And when they come 
from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders? For they eat their bread with unholy hands. Jesus said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines the commandments of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition for Moses Uh, For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of the father or mother is certainly to be put to death. But you say, if a person says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would be of help to you is Corban. That's taken over and translated for us, which means it is that which has been given to God. And you no longer allow him to do anything for his father or his mother, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. And after he called the crowd again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which come out of the person are what defile the person. And when he later entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him the parable. He said, are you so lacking in understanding as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thereby, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which comes out of a person, that is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the heart of people, come the evil thoughts. Acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. So Mark takes it all in one long story and throws it all together. And to separate it would make it very difficult because he wants to tell us about three main things. One is the first part is the charge that Jesus is having against him. That's the first eight verses. And then he counters that charge, if you wish, and does a countersuit, if you wish, against them. And then in the last part, he actually goes through his argument of why it is that he said they are so wrong. And so in one whole setting, we get this understanding of how Jesus is confronting the conflict of tradition versus original intent. So let me clarify this morning, when we're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes are the ones handing down the intentions of the law. So keep in mind, it was designed that they would take the truths, teach them in ways that they could be understood and applied and therefore handed down for generation to generation. At this point, you might say, well, isn't that what we all do? The problem became that over the time, more and more of it became what they wanted and what they saw needed to be done, and the interpretation and the intent of the law became more of a personal agenda 
and how they just wanted it to be done. So all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in the midst of these Pharisees and scribes, and he confronts them over this tradition and their interpretation. This morning, I confront you in the same way the Pharisees were aligned with the religion that was interested in self-interested or self-seeking gain. I'm not saying that's you this morning, but how many people do you know have used church, have used religion, have used scripture for self-seeking interests? To bring about gain in business ventures, to bring about reputation, to reach out to a group of people. Let me say this gently. Years ago in the 80s, people began to solicit evangelical businesses as Christian. In the understanding that if you were a Christian and you were in business, it was a safe place for anybody else who was a what? A Christian to come. And so the evangelical movement began, and pretty soon we began to realize that it wasn't just one or two people calling themselves Christians. Now every business was calling themselves what? Christian. And it began to water down what Christianity was. We began to had to decide, well, what really makes you a Christian? What really determines whether or not you are? And how is it that you practice? And it didn't take long until your prices as a Christian weren't much different than the prices of non-Christians. And then all of a sudden, Christians like pastors ought to work for free. And now it's hard to be a Christian business if you weren't helping people and doing it for what? Free. It's amazing how things get distorted. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And in the first verses, he reminds us the defilement of this heart that we're talking about is because the word of God is either misused, misinterpreted, or completely misconstrued altogether. It's a pattern that gets worse and worse in your life. And if you're not careful, the word of God will become less and less important to you, will become less and less active in your life, and you will find that many times you will say things like this. Somewhere in the Bible it says that. I know the Bible teaches somewhere in there this. We even tell our kids, you know better than that. We've taught you better than that. And we throw out these phrases as though everything we are now doing is coming from what? The Bible. Even if we don't know where. Jesus confronts these scribes and Pharisees that ceremonial impurity is what is happening at the expense of the purity of the law. You see, what we realize over time is when we add to or take away from God's word, we actually change the intentions of what was meant. So we live in a world that does that. We quote people all the time. We look to our forefathers. We look to our leaders. We look to Christian leaders. We look to the books they write. We look to the articles that are there. We spend much of our time reading all about Scripture and all about Jesus and spend so little time with Jesus and with his word. And so all of a sudden, the question just becomes, as we start, without the renewal of a heart, that's where Jesus is, without this understanding of the change that comes from within, there is no hope. And so I ask you before I start the hard question, what is the authoritative framework of your life? Is it the truth of his word or the traditions that you've handed down? 
That's the question that Jesus brings us to. Let me begin with it in verse one and two when they're mad at Jesus and there's all kinds of reasons why. When they begin to gather to get, to get him, it's because of all that Jesus has done. It's been a while now, probably close to a year, some would say, that Jesus has been out ministering and they're mad at him because Jesus had a divine prerogative, if you wish. He, he was seen as having more authority and he was seen as coming from God and people began to believe that and what he was saying was more true and he didn't honor their traditions and he associated with sinners this is the man they're gathering together because with all of this in mind, he had a greater influence on the people than they did. And so they were upset. And so the argument begins to unfold where they're now blaming Jesus. Listen to what it says. Why is it that your disciples do this? Isn't it amazing? We could ask ourselves the same things. His disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Aniptois is the word that is used there. It's unwashed. It's against being washed. There's nothing important about it, but they were mad because they hadn't washed their hands. But more importantly, they hadn't washed their hands. And they belonged to who? To Jesus. It was the actions of the disciples that they were using against Jesus. And why couldn't he change them? Why couldn't he make that change for them? Let me ask you, as I wrote in my own notes for myself, I wonder if my actions are reflected on Jesus as much as theirs were. I wonder if when people look at you, they would criticize Jesus for what you're doing. I wonder when people look at your life that they would call to mind and anger at Jesus because of the changes he's made in your life. And that even though you don't disagree with others, they're frustrated with Jesus because of who you are today. Just where are you in that relationship? Because he begins in verse 3 to tell us the importance of this argument. Now, I won't get into all the details, but folks, listen to how extensive tradition got and how things down the years have got changed, even within our texts. I want you to be patient with me this morning because I won't go into it too deep. Some of you who love to study will know this. But when we get to verse 3, listen to what it says. For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash. Now, what's important is I don't know what your translation says there, but this is an important part because this is just a, a word that is not even translated in Scripture. To be carefully washed is because within our text, if you like this, there's this word pugme in there that's not even translated. All the translations have skipped right over it and just simply said, we're going to call it, you shouldn't eat unless you carefully wash. Do you know what it literally says in the Greek? That they should not eat unless they wash with the fist. It's caused all kinds of translations because did they really mean to wash up to the fists? Did they really mean that maybe it just meant to gather water with the fists, an amount? Did it really mean to put under water and to, to baptize them, if you wish? And you wouldn't know this. I was sharing with some in our church. What's so amazing about how things can change is that if you have a difference in Greek texts, how many of you know you have a different in Greek texts, right? We have thousands of manuscripts that have been found. And if you were to read this text, it says, The Jews do not eat unless they wash to their fists, therefore holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. Folks, what is this washing to the fists? Do we realize that back in Deuteronomy, the only people that really needed to wash were who? The priests. 
Where in Scripture did we get to the point that now everybody needed to wash and we needed to wash specifically and that everybody had to be cleansed, that everybody had to do it in a specific way? Was it a handful of water that would bring about ceremony cleansing? Was it going to be the full immersion into the water that would signal whether or not we have been cleaned? It's a little obvious to most that it probably wouldn't be a whole immersion because why would people go to the community and have to take a bath before they ate every time? You see, the confusion began because there was this tradition of what people wanted you to do, and it started to become reality. So much so that I'm going to give you a bit of truth, that even in the Greek manuscripts, even in the Greek manuscripts, if you're wrestling with the Nestle stand or the third edition of what we use in the Western world from Rome West, you have a word that is used for washing called baptizontai. It is the word we use for what? Immersion and baptism. Do you realize that when they said to this in the next part where it says, uh, verse 4, and when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they completely cleansed themselves. You have this in your Greek text. It's another word of baptizontai. But that's not in the Eastern Greek texts. If you were to look at many of the other texts, it is the word called pantizontai, which is the word for sprinkling. And if you don't understand that, here's what's hard, is we've taken two words of baptismos, put them in the Western text, or we've used them, and we've translated them as washing when every time we've been told in the New Testament that baptism must be done how? By immersion. And yet here in our own text, we are now told that the word baptismos, baptizontos, is translated as a wash. And in some Greek texts, it's, it's actually pantizontal, which means sprinkling. Do you see now all of a sudden you say, well, why does this matter? Do you see we have texts and we have people that should be handing down these truths. But what happens is people make a choice of what they would like to see happen. And the elders wanted to see more of a cleansing. They wanted to see more take place. They wanted to make sure that this Jesus who was with sinners, who was touching hands with the unclean, who was reaching out to those who needed to be healed, who were touched by demon possession, they didn't want him to just come and grab a cup of water and maybe be sprinkled clean because it was ceremonial, they wanted to make sure that these people were what? Thoroughly washed. And we get the word baptizontos in the text. Now you go do your study. An amazing way to show how even traditions battle with the truth. Wouldn't you rather just be told what the text says and then you wrestle with the Holy Spirit of what you think it means? All of a sudden, the debate rages because now we hit the truth of the argument. Listen to what happens when tradition and truth come side by side. We realize what has happened even throughout the Protestant Reformation. We could go on and on and share with you that the whole point of the Protestant Reformation was a battle of what we were going to submit to. Were we going to submit to the truths of the text or to the traditions that were handed down? What would it be that would bind our conscience? Verse 4 simply says it this way. 
And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which we've received. I just wonder if we're ever given a list of what those other things are. Just how many other things besides washing did the scribes and Pharisees insert as truth because they liked it in their traditions? How many other things do you find yourself trying to keep up with on how churches should act and what their ministries should be and who they should reach and how they should function? And we base it on the way we've always done things. Now, there is valid importance in true tradition. Traditions that support the truths of Scripture is what we're looking for. Traditions that take the interpretations of those truths and hand them down without changing them. That's what we're looking for. And the only way to do that is to make sure when you're handing down your traditions that you're also handing alongside of it the what? The truth. The next time you tell someone that Jesus loves them, that's a great tradition, but it's also what? Truth. And instead of just telling them that, maybe that's the time in your life that you need to realize just where in Scripture is that so that when I tell somebody that Jesus died for them, that he gave himself on the tree, that he wasn't there to just walk away, he didn't just come to be a good example, and you're telling them all these things that we know are true, maybe it's time we actually find that in the truth and tell them where it is. How many of you know the Romans Road? You don't have to raise your hand. It's nice if you did because you can take a person from where they are to the point of salvation by just using the passages in the books of Romans. You can start with Romans 1, you can move to Romans 3, you can go to Romans 5, move to Romans 6, then go to Romans 8 if you wish, and then you can go to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and next thing you know, you've led someone to what it means to proclaiming the gospel message to being a living sacrifice for Christ, and you really didn't have to do anything but give them what? Scripture. Here's where the debate rages. When all of a sudden we take God's we take God's word and we add make it into a policy. And then the policy becomes regulations. And then all of a sudden the regulations begin to bind our conscience. And now we have people feeling guilty over not doing the things we've asked them to do when God's never told them they needed to do that. And now our traditions are binding the conscience of people rather than the scriptures. I ask you again this morning, is your life and its framework centered in the truths of God's word or in the things you've just been told? Maybe it's time to check them out. Maybe it's time to find them in the truth. To obey the law is one thing, but to trample over the spirit of the law and what it was designed to accomplish? Just cold, hard obedience? Is that what God is looking for? I wonder what he meant in John when he said, we must worship in spirit and truth. You see, all of a sudden, these begin to flow right out about where Jesus is confronting them. Because when all of a sudden we add to the law again, we say to ourselves, we're actually taking away from it 
Because when we add to the law what we think it should say, we're actually taking away from what Jesus actually said. Let me give you a good example. Maybe this is frustrating to you, but how many of you have a study Bible? Do you want me to give you a good one? I can list a bunch of them for you. The problem with study Bibles is not that they're not good. I don't mean that. But the problem of it is when you get a study Bible, many times you find yourself not reading the scriptures anymore, but just looking up the what? All the study notes. When you want to learn about something, you don't go to the scriptures. You look it up in the back and look up the paragraph that's going to talk about what it says and see what that author says. So you may not realize this, but if you bought the NIV study Bible, it's going to be a little different than the ESV study Bible. It's probably going to be a little different than the Reformation study Bible from a reform perspective. If you buy the Spirit-filled study Bible, it's going to bring in the whole ecstatic gifts that are now still available to those who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you're still working with the Schofield Reference Bible or the Ryrie Study Bible, you're still dealing with what's known as dispensationalism, a plan that doesn't deal with the covenants of God at all, but lays out how God worked differently in different administrations throughout history. And yet we live in America, and yet we're more enthused in what other people have to say about the Bible than actually reading what? The Bible. That's what Jesus is saying right now. He's saying the problem that we're having is that we're falling into the same trap that Isaiah said in Isaiah 29. The people honor me with their lips, but your heart is what? It's far from me. Let me put it this way. You're saying all the right things. You're doing all the right things. You look good in front of everybody else. You're walking through the motions. You're accomplishing what needs to be done, but your heart is not right with me. You may be ceremonially clean, but your heart is so far from the Lord. And maybe this morning you realize I have done everything the church has asked me to do. I've been in every Bible study that was ever offered. I careful how I say this. Most of us have been trained in Bible studies in organizations outside the church. Hmm. Many of us have missionaries that aren't tied to any specific organizations. We have words for these that are called parachurch organizations. They're institutions that now call themselves evangelical and they stand on Christian principles, but yet they don't want to commit or tie themselves to any one truth. Oh, this morning can be tough when we begin to realize just what was Jesus saying to these scribes and Pharisees, that maybe outwardly they were perfect, but inwardly because he calls them hypocrites. The only time in Mark that this is flat out used is to call somebody who is a hypocrite that we say is many masks. That's the word that is used. It's the time that is used to even interpret it as a pretender. It is the person who is constantly pretending to wear the masks that are necessary to be worn in the job in which they are accomplishing or the position that needs to be fulfilled 
and they just keep rotating those masks and pretending as long as they need to pretend. And yet their heart is what? Far from God. He calls them hypocrites. In my own study, I asked myself just how many masks does your pastor wear? How many masks do you wear? Where is your heart? It wasn't just the Pharisees and the scribes he was setting up for. He tells us in verse 6 as he begins to read through it, he says, But he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you as hypocrites. For you honor me with your lips, but your heart is men from me. You teach as doctrines, listen to what he says, the commandments of men. These aren't the true teachings of what God has given us. You've now interpreted scripture or traditions as being scripture, and now you're having people follow what you say rather than what God says. We live in a world of such religious development, even in a where you're allowed to believe what you want. We live in an age in which religion is now rampant, even in America, with the influx, influx of people from all over Europe and Asia. We're being introduced to all kinds of religious belief. But it really doesn't matter as long as you pick one God and remain faithful to him. Is that truth? Just how much, how far will we go? What happens when the tradition measures up to the truth? It always shows throughout the Reformation the same problem is that when tradition and truth are held equal, tradition seems to supplant the truth. And tradition begins to become enthroned and the truth begins to become dethroned. And for the Reformation, a return to the scriptures. Maybe in your life, you need a reformation. Maybe in your life, you need to say to yourself, just where am I that we need to return to the scriptures? Just where in our life do we need to return to God's truths so that our heart would not be so far from God? The battle began to rage in verse 8. Listen to what it says in verse 8 at the very end. Or the command, he said, you teach us doctrines, the commandments of men. Highlight this word, verse 8, the very beginning of the word. Mine says, neglecting. It's the word aphentes in Greek. It is the word that is translated leaving or neglecting. Do you see what happens when tradition gets in the way? The first step is this. We begin to leave or neglect the words and commands of God. That's what's happening. That's why Jesus says you're starting to drift from me. You're starting to go astray. Because it is the word that is used that is saying you're leaving the commands of God, neglecting them, and you're starting to hold to the traditions of man. Years ago, I wrote my doctoral paper on a statement and I had a tricky subject because back in the time in which I wrote in the late 90s a lot was going on and I wrote a titled this eliminating doctrine and illuminating faith getting rid of the traditions of man that have replaced the scriptures and that was back in the 90s Eliminating man-made teachings, didaskalos, and illuminating faith, pistos, 
truth or tradition. It's not just the offentus, it goes a little bit farther. It's not the law and tradition, it's when the law is supplanted by the tradition. It's when the law is overcome by the traditions. And so all of a sudden, look at verse 9. We went from offentus, these are words that Mark uses in verse 9, listen to what he says. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the law. You went from neglecting it to now doing what? Setting it aside completely. You were going from a place of leaving it to now it's completely neglected. Oh, you hypocrites. What started out as tradition and law is now becoming just more tradition. Listen how this falls apart. Afeteo, which is the word that is used there of leaving God's commands and setting them aside. Then he says this, it's many such things that you're doing, not just one. Once you set aside the word of God, there's now no more basis for anything you do. You become the reigning factor of what's right and wrong. Don't raise your hand, but let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to measure up to someone else's expectations? And as soon as you think you get there, what happens? They change. And you find yourself almost hopeless and frustrated because every time you think you've got it figured out, it changes. And every time you think you've gotten there, something else is added to it. And every time you think you've finally been, now it's got to be something different. It's because of afeteo. You've set aside the standard that matters most, and you're trying to become what someone else is determining. Tradition over truth. Verse 13 gives us the final of what the step is. We go from leaving the word, if you wish, or neglecting it, to setting it aside, if you wish. But now listen to this. Akaruntes is the word. It's a legal term that is actually used. These are all words in Mark. I know you don't want to do the study, but trust me, he's throwing out terms that aren't used hardly in the entire New Testament. Very seldom. And he throws out a legal term that means to be annulled, invalidated, do you see what has happened to these hypocrites? They started with tradition and the word, if you wish, and they began to set it aside, the word for tradition. And then, if you wish to say, they began to leave it aside, they began to set it over here, and then they began to, if you wish, turn from it. And now they've got to a point where they've legally said it's invalidated. It's not worth it. And we live in a world today no different than the scribes and Pharisees when we have Christians living by the principles of what? What's your framework? How it's hard when all of a sudden we realize our traditions have been changed so that we still get to do what we want. Let me give you just a few. To keep the Sabbath day to the place you needed to be. And so they started sidestepping those truths and setting those aside and eventually nullifying. Because you know how you could get around that? You could just buy a lot of homes. 
And the Pharisees would literally know that, look, it only took me 32 steps to get from this home to my next home. I didn't, I didn't go too far. And once I get to that home, I could what? I'm allowed 32 steps to the next home. And I could just, we could sidestep the whole truth and still feel like we're doing exactly what the word of God said. It wasn't just in the Sabbath things that we did. How many of you today have said, well, I didn't really lie. I just told a half-truth. We find ourselves speeding down the roads. I pick on that because we all do. But it doesn't matter because everybody what? And we've even said this. It doesn't matter for two reasons. Listen to this. One is because the cops aren't going to pull you anyway. And number two, not where it was really meant to keep us safe. Now, where did that come from? Have you read the speeding law of Maryland that says this is the speeding law, but since the cops aren't going to stop you and we really just want you to be safe, we have this law, but within your traditions, you can still drive as fast as you want. We served our, and maybe a modern day parable. We served ourself. We served ourselves. And maybe we do the same with our faith. Jesus said, You went from just simply saying, You leave the law, you set aside the law, and then eventually you nullify it. It's invalidated. And what happens then is when someone says this, oh, I'm not against the Bible. If that's what you want to live by, that's okay with you. If you see that as a wonderful, helpful guide for your life, that's okay. I just don't see the need for it, what? In my life. We've just invalidated the truth that all of us are sinners and all of us without the grace and mercy of Christ will go to hell. That truth is no longer even addressed in so many of our lives. And so verse 14, he rides up and he says this. He tells them the real defilement is not physical. It's not ceremonial. It's of the heart. True defilement comes and Jesus sets forth the difference between these, between the the moral purity, if you wish, and the material purity that's trying to be Put forth. Think about it in your own life. The problem of uncleanness stems from the heart, not from your diet. The problem is on the inside, not the outside. If you really want to change your life, it doesn't just start physically. I'm not against physical health. I know you should be physically healthy. God created you. You're a wonderful creation, and you should treat your body in a wonderful way. And you should be healthy, and you should eat the right foods, and you should work out, and you should be. I am all for a physically fit, healthy person. But none of that will get you to heaven. Just because the Bible says you should be healthy doesn't mean it replaces the fact that you need to be saved. Ceremonial, material cleansing cannot replace the purity of the heart. And so this morning I say to you, 
Maybe it's time to be cleansed on the inside. Maybe it's time all the work that you're doing on the outside, the ceremonial purity that hasn't changed what's happening in your heart, needs to be addressed. Because look what verse 19. But it does not go into the heart. Verse 21 comes out from within, out of the heart. Listen to what happens. Comes all the evil The problem is on the inside, folks. Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees because the Pharisees have convinced others they're living on the outside the way they should. And the scribes are handing down interpretations that make it easier for you to live by and measure yourself. The one thing about religions that allow you to measure yourself is that if they set out a bunch of rules and regulations, it's easy to follow them and make it feel like you're right. You can check off the list. I, I've done my study. I've done my prayer. I've done my gifts. I've done my service. I've, and you can check them off. And your heart is still far from me. Traditions of man are powerless to remove the pollution of the heart. To be right with God we must have a pure heart. You see, the tragedy of mankind is that because we sin, now we even desire to sin. That's what it culminates in. And when we set aside the word of God, it culminates in nullifying the word of God. What needs to be addressed is not our diet, but our heart. Only Jesus can do this produce an inner transformation that the law requires but cannot provide. So I give you some scriptures to close. John 14, you can write these down. John chapter 14, verse 15 and 16 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the Father will give you the Holy Spirit. And your heart will not be so far. John 14, 21. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and reveal myself as well to him. And finally, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will follow my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and we will make our home with him. Maybe this morning is the morning you need to say, Lord, please make your home in my heart. I've spent years, months, and ages being ceremonially clean, being evangelically involved. I've trampled the spirit of the laws, doing the things people want me to do. 
And this morning, I want your Holy Spirit. I want Jesus Christ to take my sins. I want the Father to come make his home in my heart. I want to be right with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Father, for the lengthy passage this morning, for the the patience as we go through it, that, Lord, we realize that even in the truths that we have, they're so easily distorted, turned from, nullified in our lives, and that they don't apply to us. Father, we've interpreted so many scriptures as applying to others, but not us. Father, we've been handed down so many truths that we are told are in the Bible, but yet we don't know where. And yet, Lord, you remind us clearly that we can give you all the lip service we want. But if our hearts are far from you, we are lost. We are hypocrites. We have many masks, and we need to be saved. Save us. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us and make your home in our hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you will, stand with me and join together as we prepare to sing our closing hymn. It is hymn number 207 in your hymn book. You can follow along as we sing together, Good Christian Men Rejoice, hymn number 207. Before I give you a benediction, let me just remind you, we do have Sunday school classes downstairs for all. Uh, We have classes for adults and children. And let me encourage you, if you're able to help this morning in one of our preschool classes, I know Donna is going to need some help. I was out this past week, but she has asked for some help because their substitute will be out. So if you're available this morning, would you please make your way downstairs and see if she has the help she needs.
so that we can continue that class as well. But if you'd receive the benediction, Paul simply said, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And God's children said, have a great Lord's Day.